Great to see you all back this morning. And uh, we've got a good bit of ground to cover. I'm sure you enjoyed uh, Paul last night. Paul's a, a, an amazing communicator. And uh, just the, the time that I had to spend with him, traveling with him, was an incredible impact on my life. So I know you're going to continue to uh, enjoy hearing from Paul this afternoon. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is, is talk about conflict. Uh, I'm going to be getting into the nitty-gritty details of conflict and practicing forgiveness um, today. Uh, these, are, these are essential skills that we need to be thinking about uh, as Christians uh, as we think about our relationships. And, and so uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. But before I do that, I want to say something about this whole issue of growth and grace in the Christian life. Uh, historically, the church has fallen off the rails in two equally and opposite error directions when you think about Christian growth. Uh, the one error that has often uh, happened is the church has lapsed into moralism. And that approach to the Christian life is to just you know try harder and typically you you take Jesus as your example and you try to buckle down and, 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 and try harder to be more like Jesus. And, and that's, that's one error that you see throughout church history. Then on the other end of the extreme, and often you can see this knee-jerk reaction to moralism, you find yourself in what is called quietism. And that's a, a theological term that means just let go and let God. You know, I just need to sit back and be passive because God's the one that's going to change me. If I do anything, if I get involved, all of a sudden, I'm going to find myself back in, back in uh, the other era of, of moralism. And so the church has tended to swing between those two. And only when the grace of Christ has, has been rediscovered throughout church history have both of those errors been involved. And uh, so what I'd like to do this morning... Uh, is to give you, before we look at conflict, give you, I think, a helpful definition of Christian growth and grace, a biblical understanding of what it means to change and grow in grace so that you can avoid both moralism and quietism. Um, here, here it is, and it, it may sound a little complicated, but first of all, let me put it this way, and it's, it's a negative and a positive. A, a vision, a true biblical vision of Christian change is not less than behavioral, it's more. Okay, you follow that? It's not less than behavioral, it's more. Is God concerned about our behavior, our words, our actions, our body language, all of that? Absolutely. But a true vision for Christian growth and grace and change is more than just behavioral. Here's the second point, again. A true Christian vision of growth and grace and change is not less than cognitive, it is more. All right? Are we to replace falsehoods with truth? Absolutely. But, but a true vision of Christian change is more than that. It's more than just replacing falsehoods with truth. So a Christian vision of change is not less than behavioral, it's more. It's not less than cognitive, it's more. Here's what a true vision of Christian change is. It is covenantal. All right? Now, as soon as I say that, everybody goes blank and they're, they're thinking, boy, I thought you were really going to give me something to work with here. When you hear the word covenant, what comes to mind? What words come to mind? Covenant. Agreement. Promise. Contract. What else? Marriage. You hear, yeah, covenant, vows. Right. All right. <laughs> Here's what the word covenant means in Scripture relationship. Why does God enact contracts and make promises and set agreements? Why does he do all of that? Because ultimately, he wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. He wants to have relationship with us. So a vision of Christian change is covenantal. It's relational. The only way I can grow and change is if I am interrelating with the true and living and very personal God of the universe. And through all of what God has done for us in Christ, 
to enable us to enter into relationship with him initially and to become a Christian is now to become a practice as I talk and interrelate to him throughout any given day of any given week. All right? Um, Remember we were talking about God being triune and therefore the universe is is relationally charged. Everything is relational. So if, if, if that's true, change is going to be covenantal. You see... It's not just me doing, it's not me just doing cognitive behavioral therapy on myself. I'm not just engaging in self-talk when I'm growing in grace. I'm not just talking to myself. I'm talking to God. The Psalms are a perfect example of covenantal change. What's the psalmist doing? He's talking, right? But he's not just talking to himself. He is having a conversation. Somebody said, oh, my soul, why are you so downcast? Right? He's having a conversation with himself, but ultimately most of the Psalms move in the direction of covenantal in a vertical direction, and he begins to become aware again of the grace and mercy and greatness of God, and he begins to talk to God. So change is only going to be happening if we're talking to God, we're relating to him, and then there's that other, other direction of change that is covenantal, and that's horizontal. Change happens as I enter into covenantal relationships with those around me. So change is highly interpersonal. Now, I'm going I'm to apply all this uh, towards the end of my comments on conflict as I illustrated out of my own life, but I just want you to get a picture of that. So what would, what would you say to the moralist who's simply trying to really buckle down and do better and live the Christian life? I would say this, talk to God. Talk to God and stay busy, right? What about the quietest who's saying, well, I'm just not going to do anything because if I do, I'm going to lapse into moralism. I say, get busy and talk to God, right? And, And when I say talk to God, talk to him on the basis of the grace that is yours by virtue of what he's done for you. This is actually even pressing it a little bit more. A lot of times what we we can tend to do is we can tend to just take wonderful doctrines like justification and adoption and we meditate on those doctrines and that can actually be just a form of cognitive kind of approach to change. Those doctrines are not objective in one sense. They're actually very subjective. Justification and adoption are all about me being in relationship with God. And then adoption, it's interesting, adoption not only has this very personal vertical dimension between me and God, adoption has this wonderful horizontal implication because when I get adopted by God and I am in relationship with him, guess what? All of a sudden now I've become a part of this huge family of other people who he's adopted, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So there you have that vertical interpersonal going on between you and the living God and there's this horizontal interpersonal peace that's happening uh, between you and other brothers and sisters in Christ. That is central to an understanding of growth and grace. And if we hold that, and only the grace of the gospel can enable us to do that, then we're going to avoid the pitfall of moralism, and we're going to avoid the pitfall of quietism. Okay? All right. So let's, let's look at James 4. James chapter 4. And we're going to talk about conflict, and I'm going, to, I'm going to come back to some of those initial comments. <clears throat> James 4 is a great passage because it's highlighting something that is endemic to daily life, human conflict. A typical um, kind of pattern to our relationships goes something like this. Your initial encounter and developing of a relationship with another person, if it's a romantic relationship, there's romance. If it's a friendship, there's just this sense in which, you know, you're spontaneously interrelating and serving one another and meeting one another's needs, and it's wonderful for about a week. All right, and then inevitably, that's stage one. Inevitably, stage two kicks in. Stage two is conflict right? Stage two comes right on the heels of this initial kind of warm, good feeling. I like you. You like me. I'm going to care for you. You're going to care for me. Isn't this wonderful? Whoops. I realized that 
you're not as great as I thought. And you found out that I'm not as great as I thought. And all of a sudden we have conflict. So it's not, right, it's not if conflict erupts in your relationships, right? It's when conflict erupts. But conflict comes and you wake up and you realize that people are flawed and you are flawed. And then the, the third stage of relationship is moving in the direction of resolution. How are you going to respond to that conflict? And how you respond to that conflict means everything. It will determine whether that relationship is going to to separate and get worse or it will determine whether or not that relationship deepens and matures. Oftentimes, when you engage in conflict with other people, when you engage in godly conflict, what happens is the relationship just doesn't come back to neutral and where it was before you entered the conflict. If the grace of God is at work in that context, the relationship actually deepens, it matures, it becomes more substantial, more meaningful. Uh, there's a deeper appreciation for one another. And, and that's where we want to go. We want to move from romance into conflict, through conflict in a godly way, moving towards resolution so that there will be this depth and maturation process of friendship. And if it's in a romantic relationship, of marriage, uh, greater and deeper intimacy. James 4 maps out just the, the, uh, the, the components of, of ungodly and godly conflict. I want you to look at James chapter 4, and we're just going to break, break this passage down into three basic sections. Section uh, 1 is verses 1 through 3. We'll, we'll get into kind of the dynamics of ungodly conflict, what fuels ungodly conflict. Then in verses 4 through 10, we're going to see the grace of the gospel and how the grace of the gospel begins to deconstruct that ungodly conflict and reconstruct a person so that they can engage in godly conflict. And then you'll see in verses 11 and 12, the result of being rescued from oneself. So those are the the three sections here of this passage. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 3. James says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James diagnoses the real problem when there's interpersonal conflict between you and another person, all right? And uh, it's important to understand, too, that James is writing to people he pastored. He's a pastor. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 7 and 8, when uh, Stephen is stoned and the Jews in Jerusalem are being scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution, that's James's congregation. So he's writing people who are undergoing persecution, and there's There's difficulty in them and around them. And he's trying to write and encourage them to not let the persecution that's happening around them lead them into bitter rivalries amongst one another. But notice what he says as he diagnoses uh, the problem. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He doesn't say, he's not minimizing, but he doesn't say, isn't it because of all this horrible stuff that's happening around you? No, he says what? He says, don't they come from desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. See all those behaviors that are coming out of desires within. You want something, you're not getting it, or you don't want something and you're getting it. See? And so James is unpacking and diagnosing what the real problem the reason that there's civil war going on between you and another person is because there's a civil war going on, going on inside of your very soul. There's a fight. There's a fight of desires. And it's interesting, um, two things he says that, that happen here, which is very interesting, particularly in light of our comments about change being covenantal. When they're engaging in, in, in conflict, what does he say? You... 
you do not have because you do not ask God. Here they are in the midst of interpersonal conflict, and what are they not doing? They're not talking to God. When was the last time you were involved in a conflict with another person, and the first thing that came to your mind is, I want to pray? Right? That doesn't happen naturally. If it did, it was a supernatural work of the Spirit. Give thanks. But that is not where I naturally go. When someone has wronged me or I've got an issue with someone, I don't naturally say, oh, Lord, let me just pray to you right now. I say, I can't believe they did that. You know, and you start, you start plotting and thinking about how you're going to respond. And, and James says that's what happens. So you see what happens? Immediately, you cut yourself off from the lifeline, this vertical covenantal relationship. And then he says, not only that, when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with selfish motives, right? Maybe if you do pray in the midst of conflict, your first prayer is, Lord, would you change them, right? That's not, an un, that's, not a, that's not wrong to pray for God to change other people, but very often it can be a self-centered prayer. Lord, change them. And that's what James is saying. So what's happening? Your, your vertical orient, orientation is just getting skewed. And, and by default, you're, you're giving yourself over to desires and pleasures and things that you want or trying to avoid things that you don't want in the midst of conflict. And James just wonderfully diagnoses what's going on in the midst of conflict. And he, he, he zeroes in on what's going on in your heart. He doesn't minimize the suffering and the difficult circumstances. He was a pastor. He's taking that seriously. But he says at the end of the day, the real action is not what's happening outside of you as important as that is and how seriously we need to take that into consideration. The real action is what's going on inside. What are you living for and how are you responding to what's going on around you? That's the first section. Now look at the second section. Verses 4 through 10. This is where you see the grace of the gospel breaking in. And I preached through James two or three times when I was a pastor and never really saw this as clearly as I did uh, years ago. But this is a rich passage right in here. This section, it's just saturated in, in language of grace. But you don't think so when you, when you first read it. Look what James says. And I love James. James doesn't pull any punches, does he? You adulterous people. Right Now, James has, James has the cachet to speak that way to these people because he's built relational capital with them. Remember, he's their pastor. So he's not just giving this harsh rebuke. He's speaking into the lives of people whom he loves, whom he's pastored. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James sounds a lot like his brother Jesus, doesn't he? You can't, you can't love God and something in creation. You can't worship God and money at the same time. You have one master. You can't have two. You're going to serve one and not the other. But where do you see the grace of the gospel here? James calls them adulterous people. What do you have to be before you're an adulterer? You have to be married, right? So in this, this, this rebuke, He's actually saying something fundamental about who they are and their fundamental identity, and that is you are, you are in a relationship, a covenantal relationship with the true and living God. That is who you are. That is your fundamental identity, and you are worshiping other things than the true and living God, and as a result, you are committing spiritual adultery. You are loving something, you are giving your allegiance to, you are revolving your life around something other than the true and living God. Therefore, you're acting out spiritual adultery. And then he uses that idea of friendship. You're trying to be friendly with the world, and and you have to understand that the moment that you try to make something in creation, what you live for, immediately you've turned your back on the true and living God. And he uses strong language there. But look what what this passage says. And this is a a difficult passage to exegete, right? If you've ever preached on this or any of you guys here, gals that have looked at this passage and studied in depth, it's it's a tough one to exegete. But here's what I think is going on. 
while you're straying, look what he says. He says, or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? I think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's debate exegetically, but I think, I think this is a good interpretation of the passage. The spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely. What does he mean? He says that the spirit is jealous for our affection. And typically we think of jealousy as a pejorative term, but when it it comes to God, it's not pejorative. It's very positive. God is zealous for your attention. He is jealous for your affection, right? And he gets aroused when you are pursuing other things than him and he pursues you by his spirit. While you're straying, God pursues you by his spirit and says, I will not share your affection with anyone else. You belong to me. You will love me and me alone. And while we're straying, God is pursuing us. That right there is amazing. I mean, think about this. What world religion, what philosophical system says that when you're actually in the midst of straying and disobeying, that God pursues you? That's grace right there. Uh, We had a conference on addictions at CCF, and one of the speakers says that in in, in the addiction cycle, when you are are in the downturn, uh, when you are are, um, moving back in the direction of giving in to your addiction, the speaker said, God is right there with you. He is pursuing you. And then what does James say? All right, you're straying. God pursues you. And then what happens? You humble yourself. Why did you humble yourself? Because God pursued you in his grace already. You humble yourself, and then what does he do? He pours more grace on you. You see that? This this is just a a passage that's just talking about a monsoon of God's grace that comes down on us because he is jealous for our affection. You will not worship anything else besides me. You belong to me. You are mine. You are my child. I will pursue you. I will, I will relentlessly love you. And I will woo you back to myself. And when I do, and you humble yourself, I will pour out even more grace on you. And then what does it lead to? Look at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. It leads to this, this rich, deep repentance. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. There's spiritual warfare going on here in who you will love and who you will give yourself to. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded literally means two-souled. The word sold, S-O-U-L-E-D, not S-O-L-D. You're two-souled, right? You're divided. Well, will I worship this or will I worship that? And what happens in this, this rescue mission of of grace is that God begins to to grab you and purify your heart so you become single-minded again. No longer are you divided in your loyalties, but your heart is purified. And then it leads to proper grief and mourning and wailing. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So that passage is just picturing for us, just this beautiful picture of what God is doing his redemptive actions on your behalf and mine, even when we are straying from him, when we are moving away from him. He's pursuing us by his grace. We humble ourselves. He pours grace upon us, and it leads to rich, deep change and repentance. And then look at the third thing that happens. Now the behavior begins to change. Rather than what's going on in verses 1 through 3, look what happens in verses 11 and 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, how we're not to do that. Well, what is he saying? Positively, don't judge one another, but be for one another. Encourage one another. Come alongside one another. Don't be at odds with one another. Don't judge one another. So he's, he's speaking in the negative, but he's implying the positive, right? So here you have verses one through three. Here here are the dynamics that get you off kilter 
you engage in ungodly conflict, there's rescue. And as a result of rescue, God's grace changing and transforming you at the very core of who you are, it changes then your behavior. So change happens from within and then it expresses itself without. Jesus said in Luke 6, uh, 43 through 45, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And he uses an agricultural image there, a tree, two different trees. You can look at that on your own. So that, that's the passage, that's the, the exegesis, that's the exposition, all right? And a little bit of application. Now let me, let me do more application by virtue of illustration. I just want to use two illustrations. We could get these uh, two slides up. Slide one is picturing for you the dynamics of ungodly conflict, all right? And these, uh, these items to the side are, have been lifted out of Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. I think Paul's just done a wonderful job to show how something good in creation can quickly morph and become something you worship. So what happens in ungodly conflict? You have a ruling desire. Something in creation has replaced the creator. I'm going to illustrate this in a minute. And so a good desire for something that is not in and of itself sinful quickly morphs and becomes a demand, right? I deserve it. Then it becomes a need. I need it. If I don't get it, I won't be fully human. Life won't sing. And then it becomes an expectation of others around you. And you ought to do whatever you need to do to serve me in such a way that I get what I want, or at least stay out of my way and don't give me what I don't want. And if you don't, I will be disappointed, and as a result, you will pay. You will be punished. There's a, just a nice way of thinking about how quickly we engage in ungodly conflict. And typically, we, we do conflict in different ways. And, and we can do all of these. I can do all of these. You probably are, are better at some than others. A lot of us are winners. We want control, and we're going to jump in, and we're going to fight, right, to the last battle to get what we want. Some of us are pleasers, and we just say yes, right? And we say yes, and we feel like we're being mistreated all along, but we keep saying yes, and we just grow bitter and bitter and bitter. And then some of us tend to move in the direction of just avoiding conflict altogether. I don't want to have a thing to do with this. I grew up in a home, and it was fighting and cussing and complaining, and I'm out of here. I am not going to deal with this at all. And they just shut down and avoid and leave. And those are... Those are three basic approaches to ungodly conflict. Um, trying to think how to map this out. Let me, let me show you the, well, let me, let me give you an example of that, okay? Uh, I, I worked this out in how people change. Uh, this is what it looks like for me, and I'll give you just a practical example. Um, I've been at work all day at CCEF, and I've been teaching people what it looks like to change and grow in grace. And I've been talking about, you know, covenantal change and looking at passages of scripture. And it's the end of the day and I'm tired. I've got a headache, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a human being. I'm finite and, and I'm tired. And I'm, I'm starting to, to leave CCF and I'm, I'm thinking just initially about, boy, I'm, I'm glad it's the end of the day. It's been, a, it's been a good day, but it's been a hard day. I'm tired and... I'm just really looking forward to getting home and enjoying some rest and relaxation. There's a desire. All right? Is there anything inherently sinful with, with rest and relaxation? No. We have uh, commands. Six days you shall labor. Seventh day you shall rest. We have examples of Jesus pulling away from the crowds and resting. So there's nothing inherently sinful in rest and relaxation or some comfort. But what happens to me is I get in my car and very quickly that desire for something good morphs and it starts to become a demand. I deserve it. Look at all the good things I've done today. God, just imagine if, if I hadn't been at work in your kingdom, how little it would have advanced today. <laughs> right? That's not self-centered at all, is it? I get in my car and I start to drive home and I begin to have a demand. I deserve it. I need it. You owe it to me. Oh, children of mine, oh, spouse of mine, right? And what happens in about a 10-minute drive is I've just been 
duped into worshiping something other than the true and living God. And I am functionally at that moment committing spiritual adultery. My affection, my allegiance, my loyalty, my commitments, my loves are wrapped around something in creation, a temporal experience of comfort. A good thing in and of itself, a really, really bad God. And that's what has happened. So what, what, what happens? I walk into the back door of my house and I turn into drill sergeant, right? My, my youngest daughter does this all the time to me because that's what I do. My dad was a Marine. My dad wasn't a great Santini Marine. He was a really kind and gentle, he is a kind and gentle man, 6'2", but, but, but I know something about military protocol, right? So I come in the back door and what I do in, in certain instances is I want to win. Other instances I just avoid. I'm just going upstairs. I'm not even bothering this. But in most cases I come in and I say, okay, I've got to get control. So my behavior is a controlling behavior and I turn into a drill sergeant. I have two kids arguing over the computer. I bark orders at them. I chastise them for arguing over the computer. I tell them to get their act together. Then I go over to other two kids. They're working on their homework. While I'm working with one, the other one's interrupting me, and I'm impatient with the one interrupting me. And I say, why are you interrupting me? I'm helping your sibling. As soon as I'm through helping your sibling, I'll help you. And I'm agitated, right? And my wife is sitting there looking at me, and she's thinking, oh, my goodness. Who walked in the door but Drill Sergeant Dad? And I haven't told you what I've done to the two cats and dog, <laughs> Right? What has happened? A simple desire has become what I've worshipped. And so I have become vertically disoriented. I'm worshipping something other than the true and living God. And, and let, me, let me say this without too much melodrama. You may be thinking, come on, Tim, lighten up. You're, you're not, I mean, everybody does that. You know, at least you're not throwing things at them. At least you're not swatting them across the face. And thankfully, that's the case. But what is happening in that moment? I am literally violating the sixth commandment. You know what the sixth commandment is? You shall not murder. Did you know that mild irritation and anger is murder in seed form? So there's serious, there's a serious moral drama playing out in my home when I come home from work any given day. You know, and think about it. All right. One day out of how many? But what if my kids experience that day after day after day for 15, 16, 17, 18 years? You see the trajectory? That's, that's serious stuff. But, but there's a serious moral drama playing out in my heart and in my relationships. Mild irritation and anger is murder in seed form. Read the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of of the Ten Commandments or the Westminster Shorter or Larger Catechism. It drills down to that level of application. So I am violating the Sixth Commandment. I need to be rescued from myself so that my kids and my wife and my two cats and my dog get rescued from me. All right? Let's look at the next slide. So how does change happen? There's a process. Um, and it, it's, it's working over against that other process of how a normal desire morphs and becomes a demand and a need, expectation, disappointment, punishment. And you can see throughout the passage, one, there, there needs to be a degree of self-awareness. And I'll, I'll illustrate this in just a minute. Then there needs to be this movement towards covenantal change, interacting with Father, Son, and Spirit, understanding the gospel, intelligent faith and repentance. Then it begins to shift, and I begin to think about the other people around me differently so that I can not win, please, or avoid, but do other things, maybe warn and confront, maybe encourage, maybe help. That's what godly conflict looks like. So let me, let me work this out, same scenario. I'm at CCF, I've been working all day, I'm tired, I have a headache. And by God's grace, over 33 years of being a Christian and 20 some odd years of being married with four kids, by the way, God knew I needed about five people in my face on a daily basis because I had so much to grow and learn, right? But over so much time, by God's grace, I have a degree of self-awareness. I understand, you know what, Tim? 
when you're in this kind of place where you're tired and you've been working all day, you can tend to have a sense of entitlement and you can tend to default to worshiping comfort and rest and relaxation rather than me. That right there is a work of the spirit. Just self-awareness, being aware of that. It's only the beginning though, right? Don't stop there. And so I get in my car and I'm driving home and I begin to engage in spiritual warfare. And it's not cognitive behavioral stuff, right? There, there are behavioral issues I need to uh, address. There are you know, falsehoods that are playing out in my mind that need to be addressed with God's truth. But ultimately, it needs to start with a conversation. And here's, what, here's how it starts. Lord, help me. That's you talking to God. Lord, help me. You exist. I belong to you. You have redeemed me, you have rescued me, you have forgiven me, help me. We are in relationship with one another and I need you, right? That's, that's that humble cry of a child, crying out to a true and living personal God, Lord, help me. And then I need to begin engaging in what I call intelligent faith and repentance. It's when you bring biblical truth, see you need truth, but you bring that together with prayer or talking to God conversation that creates a dynamic, a new dynamic of worship and vertical reorientation that gets you moving in a different direction. And so for comfort, what for me has been meaningful is Philippians 2. Ryan read it last night at the end of my talk. That whole picture of Jesus leaving his place of comfort and privilege and prestige saying, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And there you have this wonderful passage in Philippians 2 talking about the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. And I begin to do what the Old Testament prophets did. What did the Old Testament prophets do with the people of Israel when they were worshiping false gods? The prophets would mock the false gods. Look at that piece of wood that you're worshiping, that stick. It's very ornate, it's beautiful, but when is it ever spoken to you? When has it ever acted in your behalf? And the prophet would mock the idols that Israel was worshiping. And then after he would mock the idols and he would say, now let me remind you of your, your true God, the one who speaks and acts in your behalf and in your defense and for your good. And Philippians 2 is, is, that, is one passage, all right? One passage that begins to catch fire and I begin to talk to God and I say, all right, God, help me as I'm driving home. Comfort, when did you ever leave your place of prestige and power and empty yourself and let go of that for me? When did you ever become a human being? When did you ever suffer in my place? When did you ever die? When were you ever raised for my justification? When did you ever send your spirit to give me strength? When did you ever promise to return and completely remake me into the very likeness of Jesus? And what's happening is... I'm, I'm looking at this false object of worship, something good in and of itself, comfort that has become my ultimate focus that I'm giving my affections to. And as I'm worshiping and talking to God on the way home, as I'm engaging in spiritual warfare, by the way, I'm doing this with my eyes open, okay? Because I'm driving. Just wanna, just wanna let you know that. I want any of you to try this on your, on your way home today and close your eyes you know, while you're driving. But And no one would know that there's a battle raging in this automobile in my own heart as I'm driving home, but it is. It's spiritual warfare playing itself out, right? And as I'm talking to God, I'm I'm seeing Father, Son, and Spirit, and especially what Jesus has done for me, that is becoming more attractive and comfort gets demoted. Christ and the true and living God, Father, Son, and Spirit get promoted to their rightful place. And what happens? This two-souled man gets purified in heart, and I get reoriented vertically to worship the true and living God. Okay? Now, what happens when you get reoriented vertically? You get reoriented horizontally with the people around you. I walk into the back door of my house, and guess what? I wish I could tell you that just because God rescued rescued me from myself in the car drive on the way home, that my kids were perfectly sanctified by the time I got home. But it's the same stuff. And it's been the same stuff for 20 years. You know, it's life on life. It's sinners living with other sinners and needing the grace of Christ. I walk in, two kids are still arguing over the computer. But rather than coming in as a drill sergeant, 
I come in as a shepherd. It doesn't mean I'm not concerned. I don't just, I don't just walk in the back door of my house levitating on some astral plane, you know, like everything's groovy. No. And here's, here's the thing about Christian spirituality and, and, and godly change. It doesn't divorce you from reality. It connects you more to reality. You become more fully human. You become more, few, uh, more fully interpersonally uh, connected with those around you. I walk in, I see my two kids arguing over the computer. I'm concerned. And I may decide to try to say something and I may realize, you know what? I'm not gonna be able to take care of this right now. And I'm thinking, I ha- I've, seen, I've seen this as a pattern between these two kids. I probably need to maybe track back, you know, after dinner and sit down with the two of them. But I may need to warn and confront them. I'm concerned about just selfishness going on between the two of you as you're fighting over the computer. Can we talk about it? And I have an opportunity because I'm calm and I'm humble to maybe have an opportunity to talk about how the grace of the gospel can, can be transformative for them in that moment. It gives me an opportunity to, to converse with my kids about the good news of, of God's grace for us. I've got another child and she's doing her homework and she's upset And I might have the tendency, if I'm not careful, to get upset with her because she's upset, and I think she's upset with me, but she's not. She really has just had a mean day, a mean girl day at school, and she's fearful, and she needs some encouragement. So I have that opportunity. That's another ministry opportunity. And then I've got another sibling, and and this sibling struggles to do his homework, just basic math and basic English. There are brain weaknesses that that he has as a child and he needs help. He needs me to put my arm around him and help him. And, you know, two plus two or eight times eight. And after that, I'm no good because I, I didn't do well at math either. <laughs> but my, my ministry options are different, but I'm not a drill sergeant. I'm a shepherd. And I'm coming in and I'm, I'm aware of the situation. Why? Because I'm understanding other people as not objects that are intended to serve me or things that need to stay out of the way in what I want, but they're actually people made in God's image, my children in this instance, whom God has called me to love and serve. So I leave one mission field at CCF and I just transfer to another mission field or a ministry field at home. I got reoriented vertically, therefore, I'm reoriented horizontally. And rather than judging and being critical and being controlling and being harsh and irritable and angry, I'm coming in and I'm patient. I'm gracious, all right? And by the way, I just want you to know, I'm struggling at this. After 20 years of being a parent, I'm still struggling. I'm growing, but I'm struggling. But that is, that is the way that the, the change process happens when it comes to to ungodly and godly conflict, that frustrating ruling desire of comfort gets changed. And what happens is this, this desire for God's glory and the good of other people gets, uh, it, it replaces that, that, God, that, that God replacement of comfort and then it leads to, to a whole different way of behaving. Let me just finish with one other illustration. Um, <clears throat> I was sitting at home one day and it was late afternoon. My daughter walked in the door from school and she walked in the door, slammed the front door. By the way, I I do not like slamming doors. That's a pet peeve of mine. And uh, uh, it's interesting, look at your pet peeves. They tell you what you live for. They're, They're an indication of false objects of worship. A slamming door, you know what that communicates to me? Disrespect, because I'm, I'm, I've paid for that door, right? So respect is a big deal for me. I can default to worshiping respect. You need to respect me. And that's actually part of what's going on in this illustration. She walks in the door, slams the front door. I say, hey, she ignores me. Uh-oh, disrespected a second time. She stomps up the first flight of stairs, stomps up the second flight of stairs. Disrespect, I paid for those stairs. Or I'm paying the bank for those stairs. (laughs) Then she goes into her room on the third floor and slams her door. 
right? What's going on here? I'm sitting there thinking, oh my goodness. You know, I, I have been disrespected. You know, there are about 25 stairs, 25 times, times two doors. <laughs> and it's all about me. You see, it's all about me because I've got this kingdom that I'm running. And I want Jesus to kind of come into my kingdom and, and help me run it so that I can get what I want. And he's saying, no, Tim, I love you far too much than to enter your kingdom. I want you to enter my kingdom. So what happens? It just so happens that I was studying uh, a passage because I had to preach the next Sunday. Isn't that interesting? And the passage was 1 Corinthians. And the verse that was ringing true to me as I was looking at the sermon, as I was thinking about really, really helping the people that needed to grow and change that coming Sunday, was verse 30. 1 Corinthians 30, Jesus is wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Now, here's what happened. I got out of the seat. I started stomping up the first flight of stairs, saying, where in the world did my daughter learn how to stomp upstairs? <laughs> Who taught her how to do that? I'm stomping up the first flight of stairs, and by God's grace, it just, you know, verse 30 just came to mind because it was something I'd been meditating on, and I turned the corner to go down the hallway before I go up the second flight of stairs, and, and here's the conversation I'm having. God, help me. I'm seeing what I'm doing. I'm walking up these stairs. I'm stomping. I'm frustrated. And I feel like I've been disrespected. And I'm, I'm living for people respecting me. And I feel disrespected. And I'm living for that more than you. And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 begins to, to, to grab hold of me. Jesus, Tim, Tim, I am your righteousness. I am your righteousness. You have been completely accepted by me. Why are you so upset that you're perceiving your daughter to not accept you, to not respect you? I, I've, I've given my very life for you and I've welcomed you into relationship with me. Tim, I'm, I'm talking to God. Jesus, you're my holiness. I have the Holy Spirit. It is not a foregone conclusion in this situation that I have to give in to temptation and sin. I am not bound. I am not predetermined. I no longer live under sin's dominion. I struggle with remaining sin, but there is a way out. There is a way out. I don't have to do what I would typically and naturally do in and of myself. I have the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Help me. Give me your spirit. Father, Jesus is my redemption. He is going to come one day and completely restore the entire cosmos. And I am at the very center of that, me and all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And one day, we're going to rule and reign with him for all eternity. Why am I so fixated on ruling and reigning this small little plot of land in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania right now and feel threatened that my daughter is going to disrupt my ability to rule and reign? Why? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. I'm talking, right? And it's happening in a split second. Doesn't take that long to walk downstairs. I get to the second flight of stairs and watch this. What do I do? I start walking up the stairs. I do with stairs what stairs were intended for you to do to them, <laughs> right? They were never intended for this. You know, if they, if they were, they would have built them out of steel. Mine are, you know, they're oak. They're, they're, they're strong, but I start walking up the stairs. God's grace is doing what? It's changing what my body is doing, right? Sin is very, very concrete and specific. Change, godly change must be as concrete and specific as sin. If I'm stomping up the stairs in sinful anger, then godly change means it's going to change the way I walk up the second flight of stairs. Now watch this. It's not over. I get to the top of the stairs and something miraculous happens. I get to her door. And what do you do if you're angry and you're at a door and you want to knock on it and you want to make a point? How do you do your hand? There you go, right? You do this, why? Because God has provided a certain amount of cushioning here <laughs> so that when you hit the door, because you're into self-preservation, you're not going to hurt yourself. You're going you're to make your point and it, it's, you know, this part right here is going to soften the blow. It's not going to hurt as much. Watch this. By the Spirit of God, this is unnatural. This is supernatural. By God's grace, I'm able to pivot. Watch this now. 
I'm able to pivot my arm and I'm able to tap on the door. See how the grace of the gospel changes us? I tap on the door and I say, Hannah, um, do you want to talk? I have been the most godly father in this moment. And guess what this daughter does? She doesn't appreciate my godliness. She says, I don't want to talk to you. Go away. Right? There's a lesson. Just because you're godly, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that the other person is going to respond in a godly way. All of a sudden now, I've got a new temptation. I was godly and she wasn't godly in return. And therefore, I think I might have an excuse now to be ungodly. <laughs> By God's grace, again, I was able to say, that's fine if you want to talk. Um, come down and, and talk to me later. Walk down the stairs. About um, two hours later, she comes down and we started having a conversation. She didn't even remember all the antics that I had been through. She hadn't seen what was going on in me coming up the flight of stairs and the pivot of the wrist. Um, <clears throat> and she started telling me about her day she started telling me about her day, and it was, again, it was a typical day at school. There were some hard things that happened to her. Her walking into the house, slamming the door, stomping up the stairs, slamming her door, all that, you know what? It had nothing to do with me. It really didn't. It didn't have a thing to do with me. She was hurt. She was struggling. She had suffered at school that day. She didn't need another person bullying her right? That's not what was going to be redemptive in this daughter's life. She needed a father who could patiently walk with her and give her space to struggle. And she came down, we had this conversation. It was a great conversation, just talking about what she was going through. She was in her early teens and and all the peer pressure and acceptance and experiences of rejection and being in and being excluded. You know, all those things were just bubbling in her life. And it it gave me a wonderful opportunity just to talk to her about the very thing that that I was experiencing on my walk up that second flight of stairs, the grace of the gospel. That's that's how tangible change is. And and I'm not going to tell you it's easy. That's That's why God has to do it. But we're a part of it. And as we're growing in grace, that, that covenantal aspect of, of talking to God in the midst of temptation and struggle. You should be talking to God every single, God help me. I mean, that should be, our, that should be about a, uh, you know, a sentence per second. God help me, God help me, God help me, God help me. I know you exist, I'm yours, you're mine, I need your strength. I'm so susceptible to temptation. I'm so susceptible to take even good things and live for them more than you. Help me, rescue me, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Rescue me from myself so that others get rescued from me, so that I can serve other people. Help me, Lord, to do that more and more.